Hello, I'm Tom Whittacombe and today I'm going to talk to Julian first. Julian is the author of Flowers Through Concrete, a recently published book about the hippie culture in Russia during the late 60s and early 70s. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Talking with the Hippies. Okay, so uh, hello, Julian. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. Uh, I'm really thrilled about it. It's a fascinating subject that we hopefully we're going to be talking about. But lovely to see you after all this time. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I've got so much uh, I want to talk to you about. Um, but first of all, I, I mean, where where are you from, Julian? I'm originally from Munich, um, Germany, and um, I came to the UK um, as a 20-year-old to study um, in Oxford and then basically stayed for 24 years um, doing my university career, um, then doing a PhD, then marrying, then having children. Um, and then for actually unexpectedly, the opportunity arose to move to Berlin. Uh, three years ago, and I decided to do that. Um, and so I'm finding myself back in Germany, but really in terms of academic um, expertise, I'm a British historian. I mean, I grew up in the British academia. Okay, so I mean, straight away, I'm thinking, well, wh- why are you interested in hippies? That's, that's uh, it's kind of a bit of a, um, um, you know, not many people are that interested, especially hippies from Russia. I, I was expecting you to say you came from behind the Iron Curtain or something, but... Uh, no, no, no. I, I come from this side of the Iron Curtain. I'm from Munich and um, I grew up in, in the West and I'm, I'm in many ways a, a very typical Western Cold War product. Um, the hippies, I've asked myself that question um, quite a bit um, over the last 10 years as I was doing this research because I always felt it was kind of fateful. I, I got drawn into this research, but Really, the initial um, kickoff was was coincidental, even though later on I realized that probably deep down there, there are quite a lot of reasons why I ended up studying his piece. But um, I'm a, I was a Russian specialist for, for, for a while. Um, I have written a book on youth under Stalin. And um, when a big project in Oxford got um, granted for, for financing, um, which was called Around 1968, and was looking at pro- uh, protest cultures around Europe, around that time frame, 1968, it was suggested to me if I would like to do the Soviet part. Um, and I agreed, um, not knowing what I would find because unlike Prague or Berlin or other places, 1968 is not a big year in Soviet history, but I assumed something must have happened. Um, and, and as I was sort of scouting around newspapers and, and documents and listening around, um, I, I found a couple, I mean, I found a, various protests, but they were all human rights based. They were the sort of classical dissidents. And then I stumbled across that short notice um, about a demonstration in 1971, where Moscow hippies um, organized an anti-Vietnam demonstration, which was um, actually a ruse by the KGB. It was only arranged to collect everybody who would partake and have them fingerprinted and registered by the KGB. Um, And at that day, 600 people at least were um, arrested. Um, And I was intrigued, first of all, because it hadn't actually occurred to me that there would be something like Soviet hippies. and then for, for the Soviet Union, I can't tell you just how massive 600 people was. I mean, um, the typical dissident uh, demonstrations had a few dozens and they were immediately arrested within um, a few seconds. So to have 600, and, and that's the conservative estimate, there might have been more people on the street with hippie slogans and dressed in hippie gear, um, really, I thought, and, and how come we don't know about that? Um, and that got me into tracing this this hippie community and and really it was I mean that that whole thing was always incredibly coincidental I I I didn't really know where to start because all I had was this document which I actually got out of an archive in Budapest the Radio for Liberty archive Radio for Europe Radio Liberty archive Um, and all I had was this this notice about the demonstration and then I was actually thinking back, so who might know something about this? And I remember that there was a guy in Germany who is a recent Russian emigre in the 90s called Vladimir Kamina, who became a German-Russian writer. And he was famous because he organized every week in Berlin a riot um, kind of what's called a Russian disco, where he, he basically organized a sort of ad hoc discotheque. And, um, 
something somehow told me that if this guy is organizing discos, he might know something about hippies. And I contacted him and said, do you know any old hippies? And he wrote back via his webpage um, and said, not really, but I know somebody who is um, a singer called Umka, which means the smart one, a smarty. Um, and she has a big hippie following. Why don't you go and find her? So I looked her up on her webpage and she literally a week later had a concert in Riga. And I persuaded my sister to come with me and we bought a plane ticket and we went to Riga and shut up at the concert. And indeed, um, there was a hippie crowd. And I, I found the first sort of older way, what's called older way, the old hippies. Um, and then I basically went from there. I was handed down the networks uh, for about 10 years until I had 130 interviews. Um, but this time, actually, social media had kicked in and people were online. But initially, it was really just like somebody gave me a phone number and I would call so, yes, on that, that's sort of kind of the, the nitty gritty detail of how it all started. Looking back, I can see that even though I'm A, not in the age of having been part of, of the original hippie crowd, nor did I have a life which would suggest um, enormous hippie-ish inclination. But the more I interviewed um, hippies, I realized that the, that, that kind of anarchic streak um, of, of not wanting to do things like everybody else, that I definitely shared that, even I lived it out in a different way. And that there was a sort of um, rebelliousness against bits of my upbringing, which was quite Catholic orientated, um, which uh, actually I, I, I felt in the end, I felt I knew why I was researching this, 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 these kind of people, and I felt a kind of kinship. So, you, you, I mean, it's it's absolutely lovely. I, I love um, projects that are just complete. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but just a personal thing that you know, in a way, it's a bit pointless. A bit like my podcast, really. It's it's not really needed. Um, and it, and it it's really probably your book is going to benefit more people than my podcast. But you know the amount of enjoyment that it gives, it, it's it's so minimal on the world stage. But I just love it because I love people who do that kind of thing because it just it kind of almost goes look we we can do our own entertainment. We don't need to buy into all your canned crap. And and uh, I. I just love the way you're talking about that. And I was thinking, to do that for 10 years, I mean, that's that's a real, um, that's beautiful. So um, no, no, it was off. a labor of love, I can I can say. And But I, I must say, it has benefited me immensely. And um, I actually do think it's an important story to tell exactly because of what you say, because in a way, so much of hippie philosophy, so much of hippie life is about doing the pointless stuff. Um, about doing it even if it's um, just for yourself or if it flies in the face of, of convention. And that is really a sort of kind of red thread I found almost among all the people um, I, I interviewed. And then really politically, they were on very different ends. And some of them had not very, what I would call nice views in many ways politically. But um, that sort of sense of, um, of, of, of creating beauty for beauty's sake. Um, that I would say was one of the common denominators. So did you get, did you get to go and meet these people on their sort of home territory? I mean, yes. did you go to Russia? And, yeah, and no, no, sit down I mean, um, I, after, after this first, first concert in Riga, I, I interviewed um, a few Riga's happy. I'm trying to remember who was my very first interview. And in fact, I think it was a lady I interviewed in a Hare Krishna temple because um, she had massively gone into Hare Krishna and we, we went to the vegan restaurant. Um, and so I didn't see her on her home turf, but I saw her in her in, in environment. And I interviewed her actually over two days. And the second day, she came with her much younger husband who had also been a hippie. Because one of the things I have to say about the hippie movement in the Soviet Union is that unlike in the West, it didn't disappear in the mid 70s. So it arose somewhere late 60s. And it actually was around and strong until the early 90s. Um, and that partly has to do with the fact that because it was so repressed and because it had a very stable enemy. So for the Soviet hippies, that sort of enemy of the state and the repressive state is very important. And because the state didn't change, 
the hippies didn't change either. So in the West, you know, they, they developed very quickly into an ecological movement, a feminist movement. I mean, yeah, they sort of, and from the 70s, they splinter apart into, into different movements related, but separate. And, and that didn't happen, A, because the community was smaller, and, and B, because that pressure on them kept them in place. So you actually have people basically from starting from about birth year 1945, 46 are the oldest people I interviewed in, until people who are actually only barely older than myself, so born in the early 70s. And because they were sort of the last young hippies before the Soviet Union broke apart. Um, so yeah, so these, these were my, my first two. And then um, I went to Moscow and I remember the first person I I was supposed to interview. I waited for three hours in his staircase uh, and he just didn't show up. And I thought I didn't really quite understand what happened. And then I, I went home and I contacted him again. And he said, oh, he had been arrested uh, by the police um, because they suspected him of shoplifting in the, in, the, in the supermarket. So the next day we had another interview. And first I thought that he was, that this was a sign of the prejudice of, of a, a Russian police that basically they were going to arrest a long-haired guy. Later on, I heard that probably he did indeed shoplift because that is what he was famous for. But it, it, it gave a pretty good introduction of um, that this was not going to be the sort of kind of intellectuals I, I used to interview beforehand uh, who, who in their own way were wild, but in, in, not in that sort of way, like getting arrested in the supermarket instead of having an interview. Um, but he was actually, I remember, I mean, I reread that interview only recently and it was incredibly in, in, in informative. I mean, he clearly was still big time into his drugs. Um, and we, we spoke about four hours and he subsisted only on several cups of very black coffee. Um, I, of which I learned that basically from now on, I then always brought um, nuts or something with me to, 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 to last through the interviews because these people were so used to not eating much, um, but I was used to eating something, which was very different to, again, previous interviews in Russia, where usually you come and you have a very full table and your, your problem is almost the opposite, that people force you to eat. Um, but, the, but the hippies definitely, they had a different um, modus vivendi. Yeah. So do you think you've got a really kind of good picture of what their lives are actually like in the late 60s, early 70s? And can we talk about that a bit? Because obviously at that time I was a hippie, young hippie in UK. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, when I first read about your book, I was just like, I don't believe this. Uh, and, and now listening to you talk and I'm, well, I'm still thinking, God, Anyway, t try and tell us what that what their lives were like. Well, in many ways, I mean, you would have been, yeah, they would have loved to have met you because um, they, they spent a lot of their time putting together all the scraps of information about hippies they could get. But it also, it's, it's I mean, the, the, the way how this hippie community developed is a testimony to basically that no Iron Curtain can ever really um, stop information. I mean, I have a pretty good picture because I've, I've interviewed several communities and um, and I've also seen KGB documents about hippies um, from the Ukraine because that's the only KGB archive that's open. And you can see that basically it came straight out of um, a, a very deep worship of the Beatles. Um, that is really the beginning in, in the Soviet Union. For some reason, the Beatles really touched a musical nerve among Soviet youth, which musicologists have explained it has something to do a little bit with the kind of Bart um, poet, the, the sung poetry tradition you had in the Soviet Union and, and somehow the Beatles fit into that picture in a way how, for example, Elvis hadn't um, or the Rolling Stones didn't really. So the, the Beatles were cut off in the beginning and then because the Beatles started turning hippie in that time around 68, 69, and it was um, visible from the pictures taken from them, the album covers, and some of these pictures did make it into journals which made it into the Soviet Union, quite often Polish journals, which then it was a bit freer, which then got traded into, into the Soviet Union. And in terms of information, the interesting thing is that actually because the Soviet state first didn't really know of how to write about this Western phenomena of hippies, because after all, hippies were anti-capitalist, anti-Vietnam War, anti-materialist. Um, so all of that, of course, chimed with Soviet um, ideas as, as well. The, the Soviet Union was opposed to the Vietnam War. They at least nominally had a system that was anti-materialist. So 
Actually, the first articles on Soviet hippies, which came about in Pravda in 1967, were very positive. I mean, they weren't entirely endorsing because they felt that the ideology was missing, um, but um, they saw it as a sign that Western youth is rising against uh, their capitalist elders. So there actually was quite a lot of coverage. So the, the first article, as I say, Pravda 1967, and then in 68, there was a very long piece in a journal called Vakruk Sveta, which is called Around the World, which is a sort of kind of geographical journal for young people. And the guy who wrote the article, uh, Genrik Baravik, was a very established journalist who was actually um, positioned in, in New York. And his daughter and her best friend were sort of kind of had fallen in with the New York hippie crowd. They were very young. They were only 15. Um, but they had learned that there was Woodstock and they were on their way to Woodstock until they realized that they would get into trouble if they wouldn't come back home. So they turned around. But they, I mean, I've seen pictures. They looked very convincing, like hippies. Um, and they clearly were enthralled by the crowd in, in the Lower East Side. And uh, they had contact with them living in New York. And they were the sources um, to feed into this article. So the article actually is a very informed, slightly sentimental, but definitely positive piece about American hippies. And it, it, has, it has a very nice tone of like of people seeking freedom, seeking freedom from the oppression of materiality, of falling wherever they can sleep, of seeing beauty in the world. And so, I mean, I can see how you could read this article and fall in love with this movement, even if you're far away. And, and, and so people did. And this article really turn people in all sorts of little places and bigger places um, wanting to be hippies. Um, and if you look at pictures at the time, they obviously did not look yet like um, American or British hippies. First of all, as you know, hair takes some time to grow. Yeah. You can't overnight have long hair. And then they, they were sort of piecing together bits. And then of course they, they started to run into trouble because even though the Soviet Union ideologically was positive about hippies, they did not really like the idea of having long-haired youngsters with bell-bottom jeans and patches and flowers painted on their cheeks um, in, in their own town. So there was a sort of kind of uncertain situation. They were tolerated, but sometimes not really dependent on the local police. But it started to look very convincing. And I must say that something I often do when I give papers um, about this, I show a picture of um, hippies in Hyde Park, a picture of hippies in Berkeley, and a picture of hippies in Leningrad uh, sitting in front of the Kazan Cathedral. And I challenge my viewers and say, can you tell me which one is which? And actually quite often people can't. So by the about 72, 73, the Soviet hippies look very convincing. They look like Western hippies. Um, and um, and that, that is sort of a period where they also, this is what they wanted. They, they tried to get as much information as they could, and they wanted to be like Western hippies. They um, And of course, sometimes if you read what they're writing, or if, you, if I get testimony, you can tell. I mean, obviously, the information sometimes arrives as incomplete. So there is a there's a tendency to try to make it an organization because that's what they know. They they had organization, youth organizations, and like um, and and sometimes the hippies sound a little bit like the scouts, like you have a membership and you have a membership fee. And but in generally um, in the big cities where you also have a little bit of contact to the to the west, where sometimes um, western hippies come and visit. And they, they start getting getting the picture and you can see it in that demonstration 1971. It, it happens on the 1st of June 1971. And it's I'm absolutely sure it's based on the May demonstrations in Washington, D.C. a month earlier where lots of people get arrested. And so these arrests made the local the, the Soviet press. So they really want to do the same thing. And of, of course, one of the things that's interesting is protesting somebody else's war is not the same as protesting your own war. And and that discrepancy, for example, in pacifism, that is that remains a difference. Um, what happens on 71 after the mass arrest at the demonstrations, it basically becomes clear that you are not allowed to be a hippie and be a Soviet person living in peace. So you have to make a choice. If you become a hippie, you really drop out of Soviet society. Um, so everybody who was a student at the time of the demonstration got arrested, they got kicked out of university, and some of the guys got sent to the... Um, uh, to the front uh, with, with China into into um, army service and um, and what happens then until basically the mid seventies uh, that there's a smaller group of hippies around but they become more professional. You basically 
the people who now become hippies, they become an incredibly dedicated professional crowd. You, they work in jobs which, I mean, everybody had to work in the Soviet Union. So they work in jobs where you basically have no touch with ideology. Um, they work in boiler rooms because the heating system in the Soviet Union was centralized. So you had these big boiler rooms. They work in theater, they work in storage places. A lot of them become um, nude models in art schools. So all stuff which basically is low paid um, and but outside the sort of uh, vision of, of, of the party and the state. And um, all the rest of their life, basically, they create this parallel world um, of hippodom. So they, they, they start having a summer camp um, in, in Latvia, where they go to every summer. They start having sort of rituals. They start traveling across the Soviet Union and hitchhiking very extensively. Um, they brew their own drugs, which they learn how to make out of poppy flowers, um, something called muck. Um, they, uh, so, and, and, and as time goes on, and as I say, because the community continues to exist, there's a more and more perfect world of people who know each other um, and, and live this hippie life almost outside the Soviet parameters. Um, and, and they give themselves a name, they call themselves a Systema, the system. Um, and the system is incredibly um, potent because even though only very few people really are inside the system, let's say at any given time, I would say it's about 10,000 across the whole Soviet Union, but they're, they're sort of kind of um, lighthouse effect is, is very strong because of course they have friends who are maybe not in the system or not full blown hippies, but they sometimes hang around at the weekend and these friends have again friends and then they're all linked to the sort of emerging rock music community. So in fact, actually, as, as an influencer, the Sistema is incredibly um, influential. And actually, I would say it changes Soviet youth significantly because in the 80s, even already in the late 70s, the way how you're allowed to look is already miles away how you were allowed to look in the 60s. I mean, similar in a way what happened in the West, where, of course, also the mainstream fashion hippicized. And, uh, and that is happening in the, in the Soviet Union, too. Um, and if you now look around, I mean, a lot of people in, in Russia who are famous um, rock musicians, uh, famous filmmakers, um, writers have roots in that system, have had at some point in their life a connection to this hippie system. Um, so, yeah, it really becomes a, a very parallel world, but of course not without danger. So first of all, the, the men obviously don't want to go to the army, but you have conscriptions. And in order to get out of conscription, they actually devise a system of how to pretend to be schizophrenic or how to be mad. So they, they basically know what to say when they are coming to the military recruitment office to be sent to the psychiatry. And in, in the Soviet Union, there was something, there was a different diagnosis of schizophrenia um, called sluggish schizophrenia, which was very easy to get. So if they knew how to say the right sentences, they basically would get this diagnosis and they had to spend six weeks in a closed psychiatric hospital, but then they were exempt from the army forever. Um, but of course, in these psychiatric hospitals, that's, uh, it's a very volatile environment. And um, people tell me that, I mean, they got enforced medication. Some of them were beaten. Um, and then quite often they were just collected from the streets. Um, it sort of depended on waves of repression. They had their hair cut, their trousers cut. Um, they, they were thrown into, into prison for a night or two. Nothing really ever really bad happens to them. The ones who suffer the most are the ones who are drug users because they are liable to criminal charges. But it's enough of a harassment to be, I mean, it's a lot tougher to be a Soviet hippie than to be a Western hippie. Could they, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine how horrible, I, I suppose maybe it didn't feel so bad for them because they were so used to that kind of living in that kind of um, repression. I mean, I know we're all to a degree living in some kind of repression from our governments, but in the 60s, 70s, we could, we were, we felt pretty free, you know, to do what the hell we liked. I mean, obviously they'd pick us up for the drugs and stuff, but as to what we said or how we looked or, um, you know, demonstrations, all of those things, we could just do what the hell we liked. Uh, and it was, you know, we didn't think twice about it, really. I, I mean, I think if I'd have been there, I would have wanted to just get out. Was that an option? 
Not really. There was no way out of the Soviet Union, except um, there, were, there were two ways, but both of them were hard. One was only open. If you were Jewish, you could um, try to emigrate to Israel. Um, there was um, an exit route you, uh, for, for Jewish citizens when you got an if you got an invitation from Israel, which you could get via connections, um, and then you had to go through a procedure. Um, and if you were granted an exit visa, you could leave. And, and some hippies do. That is an immigration wave in the early 70s of, of, of hippies, especially in Lit Lithuania and, and also in Moscow. I've, I, and when I did interviews, actually, I traveled quite a lot to Israel to interview people who had emigrated um, to, to, to Israel. But I mean, A, you could get refused if you came from a family with a high degree of education, especially in the technical area, which might touch on something which would be secret, you would not be granted exit. So you had this whole pool of people called the refuseniks um, who actually had applied for exit visas but didn't get them. And then of course the vast majority of people weren't um, Jewish. And the only other way was to, um, to try to, to escape from the border. But I honestly, I only know of two instances. Um, some people hijacked planes. It, it actually happened more often than one thinks. Um, a plane hijackers to divert the, the the planes into a Western territory. So I know that two hippies did that um, in uh, Estonia and they ended up in Sweden. And then people try to, to cross the border, um, mostly uh, again, Estonia and, and, and Finland, um, or sometimes down in the Caucasus, um, but it was very dangerous. If you got caught, you basically got imprisoned for life. And again, I know of one case of somebody who swam from the Crimea to a Western ship. Um, but that's, I mean, these, these are extreme, extreme cases. So really, the, you had to make do with what you had. Yeah, what was interesting is that in the mid 70s, um, people kind of realized that there are no, that the hippie community in the West isn't anymore what it was. And they, they realized that really, they have to create their own brand. And, and actually from the mid seventies, you, you have a development of, of actually a much more peculiarly Soviet hippie community. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, yeah, it's good. I, I'm utterly fascinated by it. I mean, when you started talking about Systema, straight away, I could see this, this is something totally different to what was happening in the West. Um, we were total, totally anarchic and Really, although we had things going on like um, a bit of media and, uh, you know, pop festivals and various things we could organise, it was always chaotic. And there was no kind... We had this thing called the scene. I'm telling you stuff you already know here, but this, our thing was the scene, which would be the Sistema, I guess. Uh, and we also had this thing called Weekend Hippies, which you were referring to a bit. So there were similarities all the way. And then we had people who were utterly committed to the whole thing, uh, what we would term dropout. We dropped out. Uh, mm. They were the real kind of core of the whole business. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but when I was growing up, the, that was almost like a point where I went, right, I'm done now. I've got to drop out. It's my only option. And so I did that. But when you're in somewhere like Russia, and I mean, it's, uh, I'm probably totally overreacting here, but it fills me with dread, uh, probably because stuff I read in the media that's half true or not true at all. But the idea that you've got to somehow find your freedom amongst all that repression and amongst all that kind of, um, I mean, I know you can do that, but I'd be like, I mean, I can feel it even... I don't know if you're aware of what's going on in UK at the moment, but there's this kind of sort of slight feeling that we're drifting a little bit towards fascism and uh, the right-wing government are very powerful and very underhand and kind of doing away with a lot of our freedoms. And it's a little bit scary. And I'm thinking, oh, we this is not a good thing, what's going on here. And then people are comparing it to 1930s, Germany, you know, what happened there. And, th and then I'm thinking, actually, this has been going on in Russia for decades and decades and decades, where these people are just having to live their lives and find happy lives in this kind of very restricted way of, of living. I mean, how, how do you yeah. feel about all that? 
Well, I mean, unfortunately, I have to say, I mean, I don't know what you're reading about Russia, but unfortunately, most um, most of it will be true because um, it's it's taken um, such a turn for the worst. But actually, the truth is, it's been going very badly for a long time, and and, and actually, it's a it's a very short period where there was a hope that it 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 would change. And one should not forget, I mean, Vladimir Putin is exactly the same age as most of the people I interviewed. In fact. One of my major hippie players in, in Leningrad um, was growing up in the same house as him and they knew each other as children and played in the sandpit. And I've always sort of marveled at uh, how the same house can produce two such different people. But at some point I realized that there are similarities. I mean, I can see, I mean, and, and that's what you're saying. I mean, on, so, on some level, the Sistema was also very anarchic. They called themselves Sistema, but there wasn't much. I mean, there was no real leader, even though both Moscow and Leningrad and other places knew people who were very eminent. And then they kind of became leaders or could be counted as leaders. But they, they wrecked very badly against that whole term of leadership, even though, I mean, if you look closely, obviously, there is. is um, and in fact, this guy I'm, I'm talking about who grew up with Putin in the same house, he was definitely a leader in the, in the Leningrad scene. But um, I mean, the system, I think, is, is a survival mechanism, because as you say, you can only survive that kind of repression if you feel you're not alone. And if you look at like what totalitarian states do and what does Putin's Russia do now is it desperately does not want people to connect with similar views or similar, um, because if you feel alone, you, you give up your views, you give up your looks. So I can also see that in a way, I mean, in late 60s, before repression really started, you have, even in small towns, you have communities of hippies coming about. And I see that in the KGB documents, because the KGB documents document that. And they also document quite often the repression. So in the early 70s, these communities get arrested. And as I say, quite often, it's it's not super bad. They don't get put away into the gulag or into prison. But they lose their jobs, their study places, they get intimidated, they were told their parents are going to lose their jobs, etc. And then in the small towns, these communities stop to exist. Because if you're only five people and, and five of you got intimidated, or six people and five of you got intimidated, the last person isn't going to last. Um, and the Sistema basically was a way of making sure that people knew that they were not alone because you had this extensive traveling and you had these meeting spots where you would know in the summer you would go there and you would find people and, and people had these notebooks where they scribbled down numbers and if you came into a strange town you knew whom to call or where to go to find a bed. So it got this incredibly mutual self-help but it also I think it has an, a very important political function because basically it told people they're not alone and therefore it was worthwhile sticking to it because, because they were a community. And which is of course also because the, the KGB, I can see in the documents, they get particularly worried when people start assembling and when they start traveling because this is what they don't want. But of course, a lot of, a lot of the socialization that happened, the hippies imbibed as well. And, and for example, as I say, I mean, I, I said that the, the slightly schizophrenic view on, on pacifism. So every hippie will tell you, of course, I'm against war. Um, and everybody, like the, the peace sign wasn't, if anything, even more popular in the Soviet Union than, than in the West. It was the big hippie um, marker. But if you start probing, like if you start, well, I mean, do you think there should be armies? They're like, no, of course there should be an army. I mean, our Soviet army, they're a good army. They're, they liberated us from fascism. And the same worship of, 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 of the military other people had, the, the hippies have as well. So there's no contradiction in being against war, but having this 9th of May as a holiday where they basically worship arms and uh, military and also, I mean, I went back over my interview, interviews now when the war in Ukraine started. I went back and I said, okay, I'm interested. What did people have to say about the Ukraine? And I mean, I interviewed the Ukrainian hippies and they were quite different by the stage already than, than their, their Russian counterparts, even though they shared that common Soviet hippie past. So in the Soviet Union, people went to Lviv because it was a freer city and because they had a massive amount of hippies, but um, they didn't really see it as, as, as the abroad. And when... Basically, independence came. The, the Ukrainian hippies were quite often supported independence, especially in, in, in a place like Lviv. And, and the Russian hippies sort of kind of ignored it. But when they speak about Ukraine, it's, it's all 
it's a, it, there is a, a bit of a derogatory of like these are the poor peasant types and and in, in the end of course the real sophisticated people are in Moscow and and especially um, they don't really question how the Soviet Union came together they, they they see Lviv as part of that big Russian empire and they don't really question that if Lviv wants to be in the empire or doesn't want to be in the empire and as you know it's very easy to ignore from the center what the periphery is thinking it's it's um you kind of assume that everybody's in agreement but actually people people are not so it didn't and and in the moment the 90s when basically capitalism comes and then the whole love affair with the west which was so strong in the 60s and 70s kind of collapses because they see all the things of the west they never wanted to see i mean they, they didn't want to know that, of course. I mean, they, they sort of kind of knew there were inequalities, but they didn't they didn't want to see that. Of course, I mean, a system where you can buy everything um, has its nasty sides. And, and they got, you know, they got the turbo capitalism. They didn't get any kind of social democratic capitalism. They got in the 90s, they got the nastiest um, power of the of the strong um, oligarchs and um, and so they, they started to look for other routes. They didn't want to be in thrall of the West anymore. And they started to look for other routes. And they, they started to really home down on that sort of whole Russian folkloric element. And Russians have a deeper soul. And somehow we are Russian hippies. And there's a certain amount of nationalism among Russian hippies that is in many ways in contradiction to the kind of global and international outlook the hippie movement had in the 60s. Um, but they don't see it as a as a contradiction for them. It's a sort of kind of logical development. And if they do, I mean, I have actually a guy who became such a nationalist, and he says, "Well, I actually think that the Soviet hippies were a creation of the CIA in the '60s." And it's like, "But come on, you were a hippie yourself. Do you think you were a creation of the CIA?" And he says, "Well, maybe we were manipulated into it." So you have to sort of complete turnaround, and then again, the sort of buying into conspiracy theories, which is very popular. And, and, and of, of course, in a society where for so long you didn't have any good information, conspiracy theories were always ripe. And yeah, the sad fact is that basically you now have two types of sort of um, inheritors of the Soviet hippie legacy. You have people who are very liberal and who. Um, are against Putin and they go on to demonstrations as long as you could, but they're the minority. And then you have a large chunk of people who are more passive. And among them, you have a lot of people who were very, are very devoted to the Orthodox Church. And with the Orthodox Church comes the nationalism, and with nationalism comes the support for Putin. Um, so the shocking truth is that um, among this crowd, you have quite a few people who who support this war of aggression and who refuse to see what a kind of fascist police state Russia has become itself now. Um, they kind of see it because it's it's really starting to get like you can't go on Facebook anymore and you 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 can't. But it, the Russian state under Putin has been very good to give these kind of freedoms which make it look like as if it's a free state. So, for example, the first of June is always a big hippie holiday because it's the day of the children and the Soviet hippies consider themselves flower children. And as I say, the first of June was the day of that big demonstration. And in memory of this demonstration, they assemble in a park in Tsaritsina, which is a suburb of, of Moscow, where there's a big castle. And, and they have done, they've started doing this in the 80s and they're, they're still doing it. And, and from time to time in the 80s, this whole meeting got shut down by the police. And, and even at the time I was there once in the early 2000s, um, it got shut down by the police. But for example, two days ago, it happened. Um, and there's a lot of young people coming and, you know, they will argue, but, you know, we can assemble and we couldn't do this in the Soviet Union, so it can't be that bad. So they, they kind of refused to see... On the other hand, you know, if somebody would have gone up there with a sign saying no war, they would have been arrested at no, at, at, at no, in, in no time. So Putin has done a more sophisticated, a more kind of almost more evil system because he he convinces people that things are all right. But actually, people self-censor all the time because you actually don't know exactly where the border is. And the people who fall into the machinery, it's absolutely brutal. Um, I mean, I myself cannot go back to Russia now. I've I've said too many things since the war started um, to to be safe. Um, I I myself now I'm waiting until Putin goes, dies, whatever. <laughs> yeah, see what happens next. I mean, I don't blame anybody for how they think because really we can only use whatever 
you know, data we've been given through. They have the data. Don't, don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm afraid I have to contradict you there. I, I do blame them for what they think about yeah. the world. <laughs> um, I think that's a bit mean, Julia. No, they're, they're, it's, it's absolutely, they, um, I mean, this is what I say, you know, they can, they, they grew up on an anti-war protest against Vietnam, but it's very easy to be against the war of somebody else. Um, when your real pacifism comes in is if you are against the war that is waged by your own country. And um, there is no doubt that war in Ukraine is an, a war of aggression. It's played out in Ukraine. It's, it's hurting thousands and thousands of innocent people. And, you know, even though the internet is partly closed, it's not completely closed. And, and, and the hippies in particular, they can be very savvy if they, if they want things, like they can get information about the rock concerts, et cetera. They can read all the news, they, they, they know it. They, they, they're kind of like, oh, politics is dirty. We don't, we don't do that kind of things. Um, but, you know, politics is dirty. And that's why we have to get involved. Um, and I used to, I used to be more like you, um, of like everybody to their own thing. But since the war started, and um, it's there's no excuse. There is absolutely no excuse. I perhaps wasn't thinking so much about the the hippies in particular. I was thinking more like, say, in this country, I can see that the national psyche it's kind of got hijacked by the right through the media. And people, yes, but they're always perpetrators. They're always, I mean, you Putin alone cannot control this country. You, you have to have the people, and you have to have the people who basically, even in these alternative communities, say, and um, we support the war in order to actually have a war. You can't have a war if you are only one leader. Um, and honestly, I mean, I'm German, I, 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 I know about how it feels to be ashamed for one's country. Um, and um, I would love to say Germany got hijacked in the 1930s by some bad people. But, you know, there's a point of where you don't get hijacked and you're just basically part of the problem. Well, I, I don't know whether to argue with you or not. I, I don't <laughs> want to spend the whole podcast arguing. <laughs> I read um, quite a bit of Adolf Hitler's book fascinating book I don't know if you've read it the uh, yeah I I was trying to kind of work out where he was coming from you know and um, because I know everyone everyone's got their reasons and everyone's got their um you know that they're who they are for some reason they're not just born like that and and I mean he started off as a kind of not a reasonable guy but you know kind of you could kind of when I started reading it, I was thinking I could almost have a cup of tea with this guy. And and then it kind of, then you started getting into this whole nationalism thing. And but that's what he had all the time. You know, he didn't start out. I mean, already in the 1920s, these were people who, who were prepared to kill people. He said it all out in the book. He's he, the, the racism, the... Um, the the class, class, uh, classification of people into worthwhile and non-worthwhile people, the uh, the racism towards the East, the, the, it's 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 very similar. It's the it's that sense of grievance um, of having been wronged somehow by history and um, having it and have have to right it by basically suppressing and um, attacking other people. But it's not excusable. Um, I don't excuse him. I, he had this huge thing about the motherland, didn't he? And and the protecting the German race, and it was absolutely massive. And uh, uh, at any cost, this was what he was about. Uh, that's what I got from it, anyway. But what? So where do you stand politically? I'm a kind of um, liberal socialist. Well, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm 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 relieved to hear it because I was like worrying about. So, if you read the Mind Comfort, where you? I only read it because I feel like I wanted to try and understand how he got to where he got to. As same as if I meet somebody who's right wing, I will talk to them to see if I can find out how they've got to that point. What's happened? Why are why aren't they? feeling what I'm feeling? Why don't they have that empathy and that c compassion? What, what happened to it? You know, is there some, something happened or uh, it's, I, I'm just interested in all that kind of thing. And so when you talk about the Soviet hippies and what's happened to them and how they've lived that life in that environment and some of them have kind of drifted to the right, say, I, I'm just a little bit more like, well, shit happens, you know? People yeah, but do. shit happens, uh, and that's okay as long as you don't attack somebody. Uh, I think the oh, moment, totally. 
I, the moment I, on the 24th of February. I mean, you know, I wrote a book about them and I knew their, their views even then because, you know, I was sitting in their homes and um, sometimes I see their social media profiles or quite often. And um, I, I'm, I, I was not naive when I was writing the book that these are all people who always loved and believed in love and peace and, and democracy, etc. And that isn't, I mean, I'm my whole life as a historian is about to explain of why people arrive where they arrive and... Um, but um, I guess I'm, I'm these days and, and now today is the hundreds days of the war. I'm, I'm, I'm not prepared to, um, to be as sort of um, acronymous ab about it because I've seen, I've seen to what it leads. Um, and um, I, I am slightly frustrated because these people, I mean, I, I, I've known them, as you say, I've, I've worked for 10 years and some people I have known through quite a significant time period within and and um, I did an exhibition about Soviet hippies in, in Los Angeles and the Vendor Museum and I took people who gave me material there and we traveled together. So there's a there's a there's more bond than just somebody who who has been writing about his people. I know of them, some of them quite well. And it 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 pains me because you want to like the people you you engage with. And I must say I I, I am actually um deeply um I feel betrayed myself by, by Russian society because I wanted to, them to be better. And I know there are many, many facets. And I also have in my institute now people who are refugees because they left Russia because they can't stand being there anymore. Mm -hmm. But I somehow always thought that especially the Soviet hippies who have experienced this repression, who actually know what it means to, to be different um, and to, to claim a right to be different. Um, that really is their, their core essence. They believe they had a right to be different, that they have to be able to transfer disbelief to other people too. Um, and the indifference or the acquiescence with which they now watch a war where literally every day um, hundreds of people die. I mean, the losses are massive for a modern type war and in the most brutal ways and um, and how, how they can continue as if nothing happens or even supported. I, I, do, I do find that the time for understanding has... And there's understanding, there's understanding, there's understanding in order to, to trace and there's understanding in order to forgive. And um, I think they have passed that point of where I say I, it's, it's not anymore. I don't understand and say they have a right to be like that. Um, there, there, is, there is this moral point. And it's very hard for a historian to say that because I've been trained to be completely impartial to whatever I hear, which of course never quite happens entirely. But this, this war has, has made me question if I've done that kind of thing for too long, if I've listened to these kind of stories for too long and not, and not said, hang on a minute, I understand that the 90s were really tough for you and understand that the 90s were, were a, a brutal time for Russia and the world in general, to be honest. But it does not justify to go to war with a people who, who want to live in a different way and want to orientate themselves to a different political system. That is their good right. Um, it is not a crime to apply for membership in NATO and it's not a crime to say I want to be a part of the European Union even if you don't agree politically but it just does not justify and it's it's you know the, the hippies they don't even argue that they're not on that political side and they're, they're not like the propagandists on Russian television but there is a surprising indifference to the fate of people they once have shared very important part of their life with because of course they were not only ukrainian and russian hippies they were baltic hippies lithuanian latvians estonians and it's but it's also interesting i mean interviewing these people i could already tell while i was interviewing that there is a difference in how people remember when they lived in if they lived in latvia or lithuania or ukraine or how they remembered if they lived in in russia and the bitterness uh, in, in Russia is, is the biggest. And it's actually, it's a post-imperial trauma. And the interesting thing is that these hippies carry the same post-imperial trauma, despite the fact that actually they renounced empire to, to um, a certain extent. And some of them were explicitly, I mean, somebody who unfortunately I didn't interview because he died of a, very tragically in the 90s. Um, he, in the 1983, in one of these Tsaritsyn gatherings, he wrote um, an anti-war pamphlet, which actually is, is, is so uh, up to the point. He, he wrote in it saying, do you as a pacifist not wonder what happens to your comrade who dies on the battlefield? Why do you think um, your, your, your contemporaries are killed? Not because Afghanistan attacked us. Um, 
And he's asking exactly the kind of questions which hippies should be asking now about Ukraine. Um, why, why should Russian soldiers die on this battlefield? It's, it's surprising how little these questions are asked, given how central, in theory, pacifism is to the hippie creed. Yeah. Juliana, I'm totally with you on pretty much everything you say. I, in, in, I, you know, from my point of view, there's no excuse whatsoever for war at all. Anyone who starts a war or invade, I'm on the record, so there's no way I would go with that. What I'm trying to sort of, and, and I get where you're coming from, you're quite a bit younger than me. You've, you've got, I kind of slightly feels to me like you're getting quite political about this now, and I don't blame you. You know, you, you can make a change by being forceful and putting your point across and you put it, your point across very, very well. For, for a lot of old hippies, I, I kind of feel like, I would say, so for myself, I feel like, well, how much more have I got to offer here? How Am I going to go and glue myself to a, a bus or something to save the planet? You know, what, at what point do I get political? How political do I get? How, how far am I prepared to go? And I can imagine living in somewhere like Russia in a repressive society. After a while, you're just going to go, oh, Christ, you know, give me a beer. I just feel like you're asking an awful lot there. But, you know, let's, let's, I, I don't blame you. I, I, and I love your, I love your spirit. And I totally agree with pretty much everything you say. I mean, I would hope, I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn isn't old. I would hope that, I mean, he's still very politically active. I would hope that if, 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 if Britain were to do an aggressive war, people like you would rally. Um, I would. I would definitely. And, and I think that's the difference. You know, I mean, this is... I, I, I can understand. I mean, you, you probably think I'm younger than I am, but um, even I am not anymore in my political heydays. Um, and there's a certain, I mean, first of all, you, 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 you start seeing more sides, but yeah, I, I don't, I mean, no, I do judge. I guess sort of that is the difference. And I, as, if you had taken the interview with me six months ago, um, I, I would have not been so forceful, but a um, hundred days of war have, have shaped the way I talk about um, that. And I have probably also shaped the way I, I talk about the hippies as such, I still I still love them and I still consider this was, I mean, it was actually 12 years of my life, an incredibly important period, and they have given me an enormous um, amount. And in a way, I found that on the 24th of February, that topic kind of closed for me. Um, I, I knew that um, I, I was now going to look at other things. And in a way, I'm glad I finished it. I wrote the book beforehand because I think I would find it. I mean, you know what Russia would pull through and at some point it would stop feeling so aggrieved and... Um, but for that, it would have needed a different leader and it would have, it would have needed a different political engagement. And I guess there again, it's sort of it's sad that the Soviet hippies withdrew, that um, they, didn't, they didn't see a way to continue their fight for, for difference and freedom and... Um, and oppression, they, 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 and, and, and there I don't blame them because in the 90s, everybody was busy with survival and a lot of people, a lot of very eminent hippies died because, you know, it was a, was a tough time for people who were like living in good conditions, but the hippies quite often, you know, they were drug addicted. They had precarious living arrangements. They didn't really have jobs because they hadn't learned any jobs because they had opted to go into these odd jobs, which didn't exist then anymore. Um, and so a lot of them became incredibly poor and, and literally lived on the utter margins of society. And even people I interviewed where, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes a small step between alternativeness and squalor. And, and that step wasn't, the line was quite often frequently breached in, in the later years because, you know, people came into old age and they had like 200 $250 pension per month, um, which of course gets you nothing in a modern day Russia. And, um, and they, they kind of numbed that with alcohol and drugs. Um, and then they cared even less about sort of their like personal environment. And quite a lot of them had horrific injuries all the time because when you're drunk, you can injure yourself and you don't notice. And so a lot of people there died. And I, you know, I, I don't, it, it's, it, it was a bit of, the times but the ones who are now alive they're, they're quite often they're the ones who've made the the, the, the change and they, they found jobs and um they're, they're not rich but they're not super poor anymore let's just talk because we've been talking a long time before you go uh, i want to get your perspective on 
I mean, we've kind of got the picture of Russia there really nice, not really nicely, because it's quite sad, actually, what you're saying about how it's all turned out there. Let's talk about the West and how you feel the hippie thing of the 60s and 70s, the effect, if there has been any long-lasting effects on the West, and if you think there's any, any mileage still there. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, w- I wish I could say there is a reciprocal story, but I would be stretching it. I mean, the sad truth is, of course, that there were always a couple of Westerners who were fascinated with the East. And um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I had another really sort of amazing moment in that hippie research. The, the guy who organized the 1971 demonstration, he went by the nickname of Sonsu, Sunny. Um, and uh, he died also in the 90s. Um, he drank himself to death. Um, But at some point, he was this amazing organizer. And I mean, he clearly was everywhere. And and he had this vision that he wanted to do this this, this, this demonstration. And he made everybody paint slogans. And he got permission from the Moscow City Council to do this demonstration, which was a fake permission, because now we know it was only to to arrest everybody. Um, And it, it was a bit tragic, because he was arrested first. So people who got arrested later had the impression that he didn't turn up. Um, and he was sort of kind of portrayed as if he had betrayed that demonstration, which is still a possibility. I have no absolute proof against it, but my own um, sense is he did not. And I, I think that because I traced down his brother at some point, who actually ironically had made a party career. So he had chosen the opposite route. He had become um, a functionary and um, and I, he agreed to, to, to be interviewed. And I, I, I went to his house and as we started, he put a big box on the table and said, OK, this is what is left of my brother. And it was full of diaries and notebooks. And um, so I, I basically had, I mean, it turned out his, his brother had been an absolute prolific writer of short stories in the third person, but which were all really about him and his life as, as, as hippies. And he had written a rock opera about Soviet hippies, um, a la Lloyd Webber, et cetera. So it, it was just this amazing moment for a historian where suddenly a person you had been hunting and who had been very elusive because you know he was dead, he didn't leave many traces, Suddenly I, I, I had his voice and I remember sort of for like two months I was reading through this archive and I was I felt so close because I felt like I was living with him through these stories and his letters and but he also left a notebook with a lot of addresses, uh, some of which were from the West, like a Danish guy, a German guy, an American and um, because of that was sort of already only a few years ago, social media was developed enough. Like when I typed in these people into Facebook or onto uh, into the internet, um, I, I actually found a few of them. And I said, do you remember meeting this, this guy? And um, I had a long correspondence of, uh, with an Armenian American who had gone to Moscow in 68. And uh, they had stumbled across these hippies by accident. And she was a hippie and her two friends were hippies. But even though they didn't call themselves hippies, they called themselves freaks. They were proper American. Um, and they, they, she had this correspondence with this guy, Sonsu, about like how she dropped out of university in New York and went to Aris. Sona and he by that time was for the first time arrested and spent time in the psychiatric hospital so you could see how these different worlds um, kind of met and when I contacted her she was like wow does this happen such an important episode in my in my life because it was so different and to go behind the iron curtain and find these people and she actually found her diaries of the time. And so she sent me the pages of her diary pertaining to meeting the Soviet hippies. Um, so I think in a small way, there, there was these moments of where people realized that there is something which connects them and that there are some things which are stronger than the Iron Curtain. And, and I mean, obviously there were lots of cultural misunderstandings in her diary, she describes the evening. And then I, I realized that one of the guys I had interviewed was present at the evening. So I went back to him and I said, do you remember these Americans? And then he gave me an interview about that evening. So I had the evening from different sides and I, they obviously had linguistic troubles as well, but um, but overall they, they kind of, you know, they spend a fun night um, drinking vodka and listening to, to music and um, admiring each other's clothing. And um, so I think I, I sort of think it sent out and it still sends out a signal that um, at the height of this division, there, there was something which which um, united people because they found a different way that created a parallel universe um, in which they 
they kind of lived. Um, and as I say, my, one of the, my favorite parts of research has been trying to match these stories and matching um, these addresses with with, with 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 the stories. And and not all of them are as as well as amazing as this Armenian girl who read and I got all these, these different um, texts. But Overall, however, of course, it is true that, um, and that is that is a problem of the West. Uh, the West is so occupied with itself and so navel gazing that it hardly ever looks really into the East and and wonders. And and Russia still fares a bit better, but that's a part of the problem. Who has ever looked at Ukraine or the Baltic states or Romania or all these places? Um, and and. This is sort of why I, have, I find it very gratifying to be an Eastern European historian because I, 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 I write these stories and I know that these stories are new to people. I mean, as I say, you, you didn't know there were Soviet hippies. Many people didn't know there were Soviet hippies. And just I think just the mere fact to tell people that they existed um, has already been a very gratifying experience. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's been fantastic what you've done. And uh, I don't know where you go from there with it, really, but um, it's it's fantastic that you've got it all down and got it in the book. So, Julian, can I just ask you one, one more thing? When you look at the young people today and in Germany, because of what happened to the German people during the war, they, they seem to have got more... They've had to come to terms with that, like you were saying, and it seems to have given them more depth and more understanding of life compared to what's happened to us as a nation, where we carried on being this kind of weird kind of stuff. And it's leading us into all kinds of trouble where perhaps you guys are more discerning and and uh, have gained a lot of wisdom from what happened to you. I don't know if you would see that. But now I look at the young people in this country and I have great hope for for what for their for how they are. They they are like we were in the 60s, you know. They they're not out for all this materialism and all this stuff. They're really about quality of life and and love and peace and uh, and it gives them a great heart and I wonder if you've come across that in Germany at all or even in in Russia and other countries in the, in no the I have great hope too and to be honest I must say if if there is a divide in Russian society now it's a generational gap and I mean I have I have a daughter who's 14 and one who's eight and obviously the eight-year-old isn't yet um, very political but my 14 year old I mean I don't know if she's political but she you know they're very they're very they have a completely different uh, tolerance and and take i mean um and they they are very um careful with each other um and i do actually think that i i i am optimistic because i look at them and i feel like they they actually have a better way of of treating each other than than my generation had and certainly than my parents generation had and i mean what i would say of course about germany it took many de- decades and it took several sort of kind of waves it took the shock of the completely lost war but then it also took uh, the late 60s and you know in germany the hippie movement was quite political. It was very much of forcing the elders to look into Nazi crimes into the eyes. And so I, I, I can see that like in a case like Russia, it will, it will take time. But I think the, this war will also move something in Russian society. And one can hope it's, it's, it's for the better eventually. Uh, and I do have hope because the young generation is, is different. And I am, I'm supervising and, and um, teaching a lot of Russian students um, here and uh, in the past who are very different. And, and, and the, it's, it's the more amazing because actually, you know, they, they come out of that country, which actually is uh, rather horrible at the moment. And still they have developed um, a counter idea. I mean. Obviously, the ones I see are the international ones, the, the, the sort of ones who, um, and that's not always super representative. But no, I, I do have hope overall. And I do actually hope that um, in, in the big challenge we face, which actually I don't think is political, but is a climate one that the next generation will, will do it better uh, and will force us to do it better. So I, I do think that is something that galvanizes them in the same way where I think war and peace galvanize your generation and I think nuclear energy and nuclear bombs was that was the gender galvanization point, the mobilization point for my generation. I'm very much the sort of kind of Chernobyl generation. Um, and so and I think every every generation finds their their own their own cause. But um, I think this one is very committed. So yeah. Yeah, I I, um, I sometimes wonder. Uh, I'm I'm not an academic, and I'm not. I don't 
consider myself, I'm not educated or any of that. And I sometimes wonder whether my natural optimism totally colours my view of reality. And when I say things like, I have great hope for what the young are going to do. And I just think, you know, I'm just deluding myself probably by my natural optimism. But maybe but that's I important too, because honestly, one of the things I, I admired and I really valued in hippies is that kind of optimism, because... It's pessimistic people who make wars. Optimistic people usually, I, I think that, that's so, in a way, I, you know, I support that not only on a sort of academic level, I support it on a human level. What a great place to end the podcast. Ah, thank you so much, Julian. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, I've learned so much. And uh, uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it too. Yeah, no, I did. And let me know where to find the interview. Thank you, Julian. It's been absolutely lovely. Bye. Bye. Bye.